God's love knows no bounds. And he's always bidding us to come. Through Jesus, he said, come unto me, you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will accept you. I will forgive you. I will receive you into my family. He says, come. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning I would like to present a little bit of a reality check this, to see how much about grace we really know and believe. And so the message today is coming from the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message that I give to you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let peoples or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe God will yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they, had, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I'd like for you to consider a story. I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, you are the um, a news reporter for a local uh, newspaper, and you have been assigned to go to a, uh, a hearing and a, a trial of a man who has been accused of being a serial uh, killer. And the man has already confessed, and the judge says to him, your behavior is despicable. You have no regard for human life. You have ruined the lives of many people, and because of your inhumanity, uh, you deserve to be put away for the rest of your life. Do you have anything to say to the court? Yes, Your Honor, I want to express my deepest sorrow and remorse for what I have done. And I ask for forgiveness from this court and for all who I have hurt. To the shock of everyone, the judge says, forgiveness is granted. You are a free man. All we ask is that you go out and try to do better next time. Now you can hear the gasps in the court. This is totally out of order. This is completely inappropriate. How can this judge possibly deny this family their right to justice? And you know, you would be right. Such a thing would be unthinkable in a court of law. 
But when we read Jonah chapter 3 correctly, I believe that we can see something just as scandalous going on. Let me explain. Look at the background. Many of you may understand and know this story. But Jonah has been called by God to preach to the city of Nineveh. Now the problem is that Jonah hates the Ninevites, and for good reason. They are very cruel and godless people. And more than anything, Jonah is afraid that if he goes out and preaches to this city, that somehow God might show mercy and grace and forgive them. And he doesn't want that. And so Jonah decides to get on a boat and sail in the opposite direction. Well, as you know the story, a big storm comes up and the lives of all who are on the boat are threatened. And it comes to the attention of the others that the reason for this storm might be that Jonah is running from God. And so they throw Jonah overboard. And it's there that God has a big fish to swallow Jonah and then throw him up after three days on the dry land. And then in Jonah chapter 2, he composes a song thanking God for the fish that saved him from drowning. And then comes one of the most shocking verses in all of the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now folks, I want you to think about this. It sounds absurd. It sounds crazy that God would even choose a prophet like this. A, a prophet that's angry and disobedient and full of hate. And so verse 1 constitutes one of the most amazing and glorious themes in God's dealings with his people. To anyone who has ever damaged the life of another, to anyone who has been the cause of the breakup of a marriage, to all parents who feel like that they've screwed up in raising their children, to anyone who's ever cheated on a final exam, to anyone who has ever broken the trust of someone they love, to anyone who's ever used a Ponzi scheme to steal the retirement of unsuspecting clients, to these and to many more, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And Jonah obeyed this time, but his heart was still hard against the Ninevites. And he was still angry at God. And so what we have here is the grace of God still at work in the life of a disenchanted prophet. Now you might think, well, you know, Jonah was some type of an exception to, to the rule. God just happened to be nice to this man. Well, I'm thinking of another man in the Bible that we've been studying recently. He committed adultery. He devised an elaborate scheme to cover it up. And when that didn't work, he had the woman's husband killed. He made poor decisions that got many killed. His hands were so covered with wrongfully shed blood that when he wanted to do something for God, God refused to let him do it. So how is he referred to in the Bible? Here's what God says about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And I want to say, what? Are you kidding? David, the adulterer? David, the schemer? David, the murderer? This can't be right. And then to add insult to injury in chapter, in the 26th Psalm, David says, Oh, vindicate me, O Lord, because I have lived a blameless life. I have trusted you without wavering. I want to say, no, David, no. You haven't trusted the Lord without 
wavering? You haven't lived a blameless life. How can such things even be put in the Bible? Because grace is scandalous. Grace forgives. Grace restores. And I believe that these things are, this passage, especially with David and with Jonah, are put there because God knew that we would somehow try to find the limits of grace by our sinfulness and refuse to see that grace is shocking. That it, and, and if it doesn't shock you, you probably don't understand it. There was another prophet. His name was Jonah. Jonah was involved in a scandal. God said, go marry a woman of the world, a loose woman, a prostitute. Go love this woman. And by the way, Jonah, when you do, she's going to break your heart. And here the prophet of God goes out and marries a woman of the world. And she indeed breaks her, his heart and leaves him. God says to Jonah, go get her again. Go marry her again. And he goes and finds her on the slave market. And he pays the price to redeem her and bring her back. And then there's the story of the prodigal son. You remember that wonderful story of the man who, the young, the young uh, son who left his home and took his inheritance and squandered his inheritance in a foreign land on wasteful living. But he came to himself and he came to his father. And the beautiful picture of the New Testament is the father there with his open arms saying, Come, son, you were dead, but now you're alive. Join us in a feast. But the older son is over on the side. He's angry that his father forgave him. And received him back. The young, the older man, older son missed the party because he put limits on how much his brother should be forgiven and accepted. And then there's Paul. Paul with his scandalous past, the man that was a persecutor of the church. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. So you see, Jonah is not an exception to the way God works. He's an example of it. But I want to point out there's a second strand of thought here that illustrates this wonderful idea of the greatness of God's compassion, and it is God's heart for sinners. You see, of all the likely recipients of the grace of God, Nineveh would have been close to the bottom. These people had no respect for life, no regard for God, nor anything spiritual. But it is here that one of the great revivals of the Bible takes place. You see, and I know this is, is hard for us because sometimes we have this kind of smug faith that uh, believes that God uh, loves us because we've got it all together or because we live by a higher moral standard or because we are more interested in spiritual things or any one of a number of other reasons. Well, I see here three ways in which God's compassion is shown and demonstrate it to Nineveh. First of all, he calls Nineveh a great city. Now, the Hebrew means more than just the fact that it was a large city or a populous city. The Hebrew phrase is a way of saying that Nineveh was of great importance to God. Nineveh mattered to God. God cared what happened to this city. And you see, God cares about the lost cities of the world. They're important to him. 
And God impressed this upon the Israelites from the very beginning. When God called Abraham and made a covenant with him, he said, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, Abraham, you're going to be my missionaries and my evangelists to the world. And then we see the very warning given to Nineveh. You say, well, how is a warning an evidence of compassion? It sounds punitive and it sounds kind of harsh. But a warning of of judgment is an act of grace. Why? Because it affords us an opportunity to repent. It helps us to see uh, that the consequences of our sin and be able to turn to God. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly how we come to Christ. We don't just stroll into God's presence and say, you know, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I just want to be. No. When we come to Christ, we come because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. He's convicting of our sins. He's helping us to see and perceive the danger of our way of life. And that's exactly what God is doing here. And then finally, we see... Probably the most marvelous thing of all is in verse 10 when God turns back his judgment on the city. You see, what we find here in this passage, folks, is that our God, his nature is to forgive. He delights in saving. It is his joy. It is his nature. It is delight. This is not like God said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? They've repented. I don't want to forgive these people, but I guess I've got to now. No. Joel had it right when he said, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Now, if you're listening carefully to what I'm saying this morning, you probably would ask this question. How then can God forgive us when we're guilty? I mean, think back to the judge. How could the judge do something like this to someone who is guilty? And here is the question that really drives at the heart of the gospel. Jesus took our judgment. You see, God is compassionate, but he's also just. And in his justice, he can't just say, well, it's all right, forget about it, just go out and have a better, do a better job next time. No, the only way that we can come to know Christ is if that sin is atoned for. And that's what Jesus did. He took our judgment when he died on the cross. The judgment that belonged to you and belonged to me fell upon him. Now, I want to close this morning with a question. Maybe you want to talk about this uh, over dinner. Do you think that it is possible to take grace too far? And I ask that question because I've heard people say something like this. You know, I believe in grace, but... Well, brothers and sisters, when we downsize grace, we deny the greatness of God's compassion and we undermine the power of the cross. And we fail to understand the radical, scandalous nature of grace. 
because it indeed makes us uncomfortable. And so we try to tame it so that we can understand it, so that we can remove its mystery and its scandal. Grace becomes a reward uh, for diligent Bible study. Uh, Grace is something for those who have a tremendous uh, prayer life. Grace is something for people who have small sins on their rap sheet or maybe certain kinds of sins on their rap sheet. But whether we like it or not, grace is scandalous. God's love knows no bounds. And he is always bidding us to come. Through Jesus, he said, Come unto me, you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will accept you. I will forgive you. I will receive you into my family. He says, Come. He sees what you did last weekend. And he says, Come. He hears your judgmental words and thoughts. And he says, Come. He knows our deepest secrets, those that we dare not share with anyone. And he says, come. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatness of God's compassion. And that is the scandal of grace. But it is God's gift to you. It is God's gift to me. And as difficult as it might be, he asks us to trust that. His work has been accomplished. Jesus has died on the cross. Grace will pardon it all. Open your arms and your hearts to him. He will forgive. This morning, after we close, there's going to be prayer, a prayer team here for any of you who would like to come and you need prayer for anything in your life. Our prayer team is here to pray for you. Let us bow. Our Lord, we thank you for grace. Though we might not understand it, we embrace it. And we thank you that it is our hope. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. Impress this upon our hearts. Free us from the tyranny of our own works and our own righteousness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Join us on Christmas Eve for our morning service at 8.30 and children's service at 11. In the evening, we'll have a candlelight service at 6 and a watch night service at 11. More details at firstpresschristmas.com.